Okay, so we have a very well-known story here. For those of us who were brought up in Sunday school, it was one that we would have known very well. But even in the secular world, we hear these words spoken a lot, a David and a Goliath story. Essentially, someone who is an underdog, someone who is smaller and weaker going up against someone who is much stronger and usually um, to win a well-known victory. We'd often say in terms of perhaps uh, football, we might say in the FA Cup you have a non-league side playing against a premiership side. We say it's a David and Goliath encounter as they meet together. And it's essentially, this story is very quintessentially English story as well. We love the underdog in England. We love to root for the one who shouldn't really win. We love the brave and courageous English cricketers as they go out against the might of the Australian cricketing machine and bring them down to earth, face down at Trent Bridge, all out for 60. And I apologise if we've got any of our Australian friends here this morning, and I promise that I won't mention the cricket again much. It's a very well-known story, but this morning I want to spend a little bit of time actually in the lead-up. If you notice, it's a really long chapter, but actually his fight with Goliath is right at the end of this chapter, just a few verses at the end, and actually there's a big lead-up to it, and that's what I want to look at this morning. And last week, um, Rachel um, brought to us the passage about Samuel anointing David as king. Saul had already been rejected by God because of his disobedience. And God had chosen a new king and saw Samuel had gone out and he'd anointed uh, David to be future king. But at the end of uh, that passage in chapter 16, nothing special happens at that point. David doesn't suddenly become enthroned. He doesn't suddenly become the king of Israel. It does say, though, that the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. He was being prepared for the kingship to come. In between these two accounts, we have David somehow being talent-spotted for his uh, musical abilities, for his harp or his lyre playing, and he ends up going to Saul's court when Saul um, has a spirit that comes upon him that means that he's in a foul mood, and he calls um, David in, and David um, provides some form of music therapy to him, and the evil spirit is able to leave him, and he's able to be in a much better place. But at this time, David's still living at home as a shepherd um, on the hillsides, even though he comes into Saul's court every now and again. And this is where this story picks up here. We have the Philistines, the great enemies of Israel, gathered to make war and to take land um, from the Israelites. And both these armies are on hillsides opposite each other. There's a valley running between, and they both stand on opposite hillsides facing each other. Neither of them wanting to give up the high ground to attack the other and come down into the valley. They're both standing up there, opposing each other. And it's at this point we get this uh, champion, as he's called, a word that literally means an in-betweener, someone that comes in between. And it wasn't unheard of for armies when they faced off each other to select a champion, especially the Greeks used to do this, select a champion from each side who would fight and decide the outcome of the battle for them. And Goliath here says in our Bibles, nine feet tall, the original. We don't know, somewhere between seven and nine feet. He was a big man, regardless. He carried lots of armor and great weapons with him as well. And he's challenging the Israelites to send someone out to fight him. 
And that person should really be Saul. We've read earlier um, in the passage, and Rachel reminded us last week, Saul was actually head and shoulders above everybody else himself. He was no small man. He was a large man himself. He was the leader of the Israelites. But he certainly wasn't stepping out there. His courage had gone. His heart had failed him already. And God had already spoken to him through Samuel and said, your kingship is up. You're no longer. I'm going to anoint another person, someone who's after my heart. So we have these 40 days that these armies come out in the morning, shout at each other, Goliath comes out, the Israelites get scared and run off. 40 days, a month and a half, this has been going on. A real time of trial, a real time of testing for the Israelites and for their king there. And for those of you interested in numbers, it's a, it's a number that comes up a quite a few times in the Bible in terms of times of trial and testing the 40 days or 40 days and 40 nights of the flood in the Old Testament. We have 40 days that the Israelites went out to spy the promised land to see whether they could take it or not. The Israelites themselves wandered in the desert for 40 years before they were able to take the promised land. And Jesus himself had a time of trial and testing for 40 days in the wilderness So we've got this period of time here that the Israelites and the Philistines have got this standoff between them. And it's at this point that David gets introduced to the story. The youngest of eight, his three oldest brothers, had been called up or had chosen to go to fight the Philistines. They'd been sent here and they were standing in the battle lines. David, however, is back home tending his father's sheep up on the hillsides, but he's going backwards and forwards occasionally to the royal court to play for Saul. And David now gets a new role. His father asks him to deliver some food to his, um, to his brothers on the front line and to take some food there and to get a message back to see how the battle is going. He becomes the original Ocado delivery man. Some roasted grain, some loaves of bread even some nice cheese there for the commanders of the unit. And he takes them off to the front line. And he arrives there. He's left early in the morning. He arrives there at the front line just as the soldiers have gone off to their battle lines. So what does he do? He drops off his supplies with the keeper of supplies. He just doesn't leave them lying in the road. He drops those off and goes off to the front line to find out what's going on. And as he's there... He sees what's occurring. He hears Goliath coming out and issuing his challenge, cursing the people of Israel and cursing their God as he goes. And he also finds out about these rewards that Saul is offering to the man who would go out there and fight him. Great wealth. Your family exempt from taxes, which would have been no small thing in those days. And also on top of that, his daughter's hand in marriage as well. I'm not sure if his daughters knew about this. He had two daughters. I don't know if they knew about this. But he was offering his daughter's hand in marriage for whoever would go and fight the, the Philistine. This was no small thing. And David is scratching his head here and wondering what is going on. He sees the picture. He has clarity of thought and he has wisdom. He sees this Philistine standing out there in front of him and doesn't see the great army, doesn't see the mighty stature of this person. He sees someone who is standing there and defying the armies of the living God, as it says here. And David knows the promises that God has made through his covenant to the people of Israel. 
He knows that God has promised to overthrow, to be with the Israelites as they would fight against their enemies, against the heathens. He knows that God has made a promise with Abraham to say, I will bless those that bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. And this is Goliath standing here, cursing the living God and the people of Israel. David knows that this is a battle to be won. And on top of that, there are great, there's great wealth and great rewards for the person who would stand and fight. He's scratching his head, wondering why one of these great soldiers of Israel is not rushing out to the front line to take on this guy. So he wanders around the front line, poking people and finding, what is going on? Is this really true? Is this what Saul's going to give to you to do it? And, and look, see what the Philistine is really talking about? That's, that, that's God he's talking about here. Why are you not out there? David sees the situation as God sees it, not as the other soldiers would see it. And do we see the world as God sees it? Or do we see the world as society would tell us to see the world? Are we concerned for the last and the lost and the least in our societies and in our communities? Last week we were hearing about what it means to be a person who's after God's own heart. I think this is one of the areas that we can be after God's own heart, seeing the world, seeing our communities as God would see them, not being blinded by what society would say. David looks at God rather than looking at the enemy. And we see this in the New Testament as well. We see when Peter is called by Jesus to walk on the water to him, and Peter starts to do it, and he steps out of the boat, and then he starts to look at the wind, and he starts to look at the waves around him, and he starts to sink. He takes his eyes off Jesus, and he puts his eyes on the circumstances, and that's the point when he starts to fail. There's a verse in Hebrews that talks about how our our life should be, and it talks about running a race marked out before us, giving us a really good athletic analogy here, running a race marked out for us already. We've got our lane to run in, but it says we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We don't get distracted by what's around us. We don't get distracted by the crowds or get distracted by the other runners or distracted by obstacles that might be in our path, but we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we run the race. And this was what David was doing here. He'd got his eyes fixed on God with this challenge that was standing ahead of him. So that's the lead-up. And now we have David having three confrontations with three different men. And we're going to look at these very briefly together. The first confrontation here, quite surprisingly maybe, is his confrontation with his brother, And this is a confrontation of accusation. We have Eliab here, his oldest brother, who must have been a good-looking guy because when Samuel went to anoint David, this guy was the first one that he saw. He was the oldest brother. And Samuel, in his heart and his mind, thought, this is the one that's going to be king over Israel. He must have been a fine-looking, strong, large man. A real... Steve Finn or Mark Ward of his day. Sorry, I said I wouldn't mention the cricket again. But Eliab here has heard what David has been saying. He's heard that David has been wandering around the lines asking all the soldiers, what's going on over here? Why is nobody going out over there? And he has a bit of a go here at David. Why? 
What do we think? Is there some jealousy in here somewhere? Do you know if Samuel had come to anoint a new king and he was the oldest brother and he comes out and he's a good looking, he's a strong man and he gets passed over in favour of actually the youngest brother, the eighth in line, who's actually out there tending the sheep. Do you think he's a little bit jealous of David because of that? Is he feeling a bit guilty maybe that perhaps he should be the one out there fighting Goliath. He shouldn't be the one standing there like a coward running as soon as this guy comes out. Who knows? But whatever it is, he decides to accuse David. Where are we? Verse 28. He burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. He comes over and essentially says, what are you sticking your nose into something that really doesn't concern you? And by the way, while we're on the subject, who did you leave the sheep with? I bet you just left them by themselves on the hillside. You're just a voyeur. You've just come here to watch the battle. You just want to see a bit of action. And he was questioning his motives and his abilities. But fortunately, the narrator to this story has given us a great little line um, when it tells us about David coming to the battle here. And it says, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd. Could have been missed out, that bit. But that's really helpful there, so that we know that what Eliab is actually saying to David is patently untrue here. David has been very faithful to his day job, He knows he's going to be leaving the sheep, perhaps for a day or two. He finds another shepherd out there, and he leaves the flock with him. So this accusation is ill-founded. David had already been obedient, and he'd been thorough and responsible in his duties. But then Eliab goes on to accuse him of being conceited in his heart, of being wicked. He was questioning David's heart, and he was questioning David's integrity. But we know already that David had been said to have a heart after God's own heart. He was not conceited. He was not wicked. He was seeing things as God was seeing him, not seeing things as the world was seeing him. And there's even a little put down in the middle of here. With whom did you leave those few sheep? He's not even a shepherd of a great flock. He's a guy who looks after a few sheep up on the hillside. You know, I think it would have been really easy for David to feel, feel really put down by these things that his older brother was saying about him. That he was conceited, he was wicked, he was coming as a voyeur, but really he wasn't a soldier. He was just a shepherd boy. And not really a very important shepherd boy because he only had a very few sheep. And it can be really easy to hear what other people are saying about us and to hear what society is saying about us, especially maybe here in West London. What does society, what does the world say about us? What does it say about our situation? What does it say about our job? What does it say about our salary, our family, our position in society, the house that we live in, our education, that God's not concerned about those things. God's concerned about our hearts. 
And we need to remember how God sees us rather than how society sees us. Very easy to feel put down by the things around us and trying to, um, trying to live up to what expectations of other people are. But God's concerned about our hearts and God is concerned about his world around us. People said this about Jesus, didn't they? They said, isn't this guy, isn't he just a carpenter? Isn't he just a woodworker? He's just a kind of a simple kind of guy. He's not educated. What does he know? But Jesus wouldn't let people look at him in that way. It was all about his heart and his obedience to his father and his mission here on earth. So that was the confrontation with his brother. Let's move on. Secondly, he has a confrontation with the king, with Saul. And this was a confrontation of preparation. Saul tries to put David off by reminding him of his inexperience. Verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man since his youth. David, um, Saul is looking at David's inexperience. But David turns this on its head and he looks at his previous experience rather than his inexperience. He talks about the times when he's tending the sheep and a lion and a bear comes along and tries to take the sheep away and he has to fight them himself, hand to hand, to get rid of them. God has been preparing him through this experience. I found out a little bit the other day about what it is to face a bear. I was talking to someone who gave me a very in-depth analysis of what to do when you face either a grizzly bear or a black bear. Apparently one you run, another one you lie on the ground and you put your hands over your head. Unfortunately, I can't remember which one is which. So if I'm ever walking down Isleworth High Street and I bump into a bear, I'm sorry, I'm running for it. But lions and bears, they'd have been well known in this part of the world in the ancient uh, Near East. And David would have been um, used to protecting his flock against wild animals in this way. He'd been prepared for this moment in time. Not only that, he's out on the hillside practicing his harp playing and his lyre playing, which means that he's been allowed into Saul's court to help him out. And what's God been preparing us for in our days that have passed and in the present and in the future as well? What is God preparing us for? What service does he want from us? What skills and experience have we taken on board? Maybe in our secular lives, in our work, in the situations we find ourselves in our communities, but also in our spiritual lives as well, as we grow in our faith, as we meet with other Christians, as we develop our ministries and our gifts in God's church. What's God preparing us for? In Ephesians, we're called God's workmanship, literally a body of art, a piece of art, We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, prepared in advance for us to do. We're moulded, we're designed by God for a purpose. And what's he been preparing us for? And finally, we have a third confrontation, as this is, I guess, the obvious one, the confrontation with Goliath, which was David's opportunity. He goes out there, meets Goliath, with his sling and stone and kills him and the army is routed. You know, David had been open to this opportunity. 
He'd already been doing the basic tasks well. He'd delivered the food, he'd got the sheep well looked after, but he could have turned up at this camp, dropped the food off, had a quick report and gone back home again. But he doesn't. He sees an opportunity here. He's very heads up when it comes to God's work. He's not heads down. He's looking for where God is leading him next. He saw this opportunity that God had prepared him for. It's very easy for us, it's very easy for me to get focused on the things around us, focused on our jobs, our family, our busyness, the things of life, and to miss God's plan, to miss the opportunities that he puts in our path. Last week, Rach was talking to us about how our faith is not just for 20-year-old keen students with lots of hands on their time, time on their hands, or not for vicars and not for missionaries. It's for all of us. We need to look for these opportunities that God has for us in our lives to serve him, to work for his kingdom. God has a plan for our lives. He'd had a plan for David's life. He'd been anointed and he'd been prepared through being a shepherd, through killing wild animals, through practicing his musical gifts, through killing Goliath. God was preparing David to become king of Israel and he has a plan for each of our lives here this morning. For some of us, it might be purely the start of a faith journey, maybe just coming in to all souls at this moment in time, starting an interest in the things of God. What is it about God? What is it about the Bible? Is there something relevant to the 21st century in my life here today? Maybe it's getting to the point of making a decision about our faith, recognizing the person of Jesus, who he was, what he did on the cross for us, bringing us back into a right relationship with God through his death and through his great love for us on the cross. Maybe we're in a place of preparation. Maybe we're going through hard times at the moment, things, experiences that we're gaining that in the future God is going to use as he prepares us for his service. Maybe it's a time of opportunities, looking out for the ways that God would have us serve and work in this world that we find ourselves in. Maybe it's about sharing his love, speaking with others about our own faith and about the love of Christ. Maybe it's about practical care and love for those in our community. Maybe it's serving in new ways at church, stepping up into leadership, leading groups, maybe discipling others that are younger in their faith than us and helping them to grow. God has a plan for us, just like David. He's a plan for our lives. And it might be not immediately evident what he's got for us and what that plan might be, but I pray that we will all be obedient to God's leading and be faithful to us and he prepares us for the next stage of our journey and that we'd be ready for those opportunities that God has for us in our lives.